This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello and welcome. You may remember the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester in May of 2017, in which a suicide bomber killed himself and 22 other people and injured hundreds of others. It was a terrible event, but out of it came a few stories that threw light into the darkness of the mayhem. One such story by Samantha Leffler appeared on the website aplus.com and was entitled rather clumsily Man Stranded by Manchester Attack Praises the Stranger We Helped Him Get Home. And it goes like this. The hate at the centre of the May 22nd terrorist attack in Manchester, England, that took 22 lives and injured dozens of others is evident. But that force is nothing compared to the stories of compassion and heroism that have emerged in the days following the atrocity. We've told you about the homeless man who rushed to help injured children and the cabbies who drove towards the arena after the attack to aid stranded concertgoers. And now I'd like to tell you about a man named Jordan Stevenson. According to Britain's Channel 4, Stevenson was getting ready to go to sleep when he got word of the attack, and he rightfully assumed the, the ensuing chaos would strand many people making their way back to nearby Liverpool. I knew that the trains were out, so I just thought, if anyone's going to do it, I might as well post a tweet. Within three minutes, I had 750 retweets and a load of requests from people who needed help, he told the outlet. His tweet read, If anybody from Liverpool is in Manchester and needs picking up, I'll do lifts all night. The article continues, One person who saw Stevenson's tweet was Liverpool resident Joe Foster. Foster had attended the concert with a friend and was making his way out of the arena when the bomb went off. In an essay posted on the tab, Foster recalls the horrific events of that night. Recalling how he came across two crying teenage girls, he writes, Nothing I could have said to them would have put their little hearts to rest, so I opened my arms for hugs. Desperate for a way home, Foster sent out his own tweet and soon came across Stevenson's earlier message. The pair eventually arranged for Stevenson to pick up Foster and his pal at a near, nearby hotel. I knew the power of social media was good, but I didn't realize just how amazing social media was, Foster writes. And for him, what set Stevenson apart that night was the complete selflessness that he demonstrated in such a chaotic time. He even apologized on the way home because he had to stop for petrol, which we tried to pay for, but he refused. We offered him money on numerous occasions, and he refused, Foster recalls. Even after Stevenson drove Foster and his friend safe, home safely, he remained in contact and continued to offer words of encouragement and support. Stevenson told Channel 4 he spent five hours driving people from Manchester to Liverpool, not making it home until 5.30 in the morning of May the 23rd. Still, he calls the paramedics the true heroes of the evening, adding, I suppose it was just humbling to actually be able to do something. Though Foster agrees with that sentiment, he feels Stevenson's actions warrant praise too. I am unsure as to how many people Jordan helped that night, but whether it was just me and my friend, or if he helped a hundred people, the guy deserves to be recognized 
as a beacon of brilliance in such a tragic time, he declares in the essay. Whilst I agree with him, even this response is a testament to the genuine kindness he demonstrated and he should be incredibly proud of himself. Foster also posted a similar sentiment on Twitter. Now I chose this story to open the program today because it goes some way to illustrate what we were talking about last week as we went through the text Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun by the ancient Tibetan master Namkapel. In the section titled The Precepts of Mind Training, we had arrived at the slogan Transform Your Attitude but Maintain Your Natural Behavior. On reading the story, I saw a link between this instruction and Jordan Stevenson's approach to the bombing that night. As he says, he was just going to bed when the news came through and it would have been very easy for him to climb under the sheets and gone to sleep. But instead of allowing himself the luxury, he says, I knew that the trains were out, so I just thought if anyone's going to do it, I might as well post a tweet. Within three minutes, I had 750 retweets and a load of requests from people who needed help. Of course, I'm not suggesting that he was engaged in formal mind training, but obviously something steered the urge towards his own interest away to the benefiting of others. And when we allow that to happen, aren't we actually engaged in mind training? But not only that, Stevenson maintained a low-key attitude throughout the night, not accepting any recompense for his efforts, but being at hand if anyone needed further comfort. Even after Stevenson drove Foster and his friend home safely, he remained in contact and continued to offer words of encouragement and support, says the article. And when asked about his actions, he did not claim them to be anything special, but did deflected praise to the paramedics on the scene. Now isn't this an example of taking on the suffering of others and giving them your own happiness, as described by Pema Children in the excerpt with which we finished our last program? Remember, she said, as expressed in the Lojong or mind training teachings, the fundamental attitude is to breathe the undesirable in and breathe the desirable out. In contrast, that attitude that is epidemic on the planet is that if it's unpleasant, we push it away, and if it's pleasant, we hold tight and grasp it. We will take Bema Chodron a bit further, but now before that, let's adjust our motivation for being with the program today. The best intention is to take the mind training teachings to their conclusion so that our concern is purely for others, supplanting all our self-interest, not only wishing to alleviate all others' sufferings temporarily, as Jordan Stevenson did, but freeing them completely from all discontent and misery. To do that, we must become fully enlightened beings, because such beings have by far the greatest ability to help others. So, the intention is to attain enlightenment so we can be of greatest benefit to all beings. This, of course, is the bodhicitta motivation, which is described in Mahayana Buddhism as the greatest motivation there is. So, let's make this our motivation for our coming together today. Thank you. Now going back to Pema Chodron. If you were tuned in last week, you'll be familiar with a quote which starts, in order to have compassionate relationships, compassionate communication and compassionate social action, there has to be a fundamental change in attitude. 
the notion, I am their helper and you are the one who needs help, might work in a temporary way. But fundamentally, nothing changes because there's still one who has it and one who doesn't. That dualistic notion is not really speaking to the heart. So it seems she's saying that real compassion does not express itself through a dualistic attitude of helped and helper, but out of the natural flow of the situation we find ourselves in. When we help, there is no sense at all of I am doing good or even I am doing anything special. The situation demands action, so we do whatever is appropriate and move on without concern for gratitude or reward. Even this response is a testament to the genuine kindness he demonstrated and he should be incredibly proud of himself, says Foster about Jordan Stevenson's actions. But that would be coming out of a view of duality, the helper and the helped. And why should Stevenson be proud of merely doing what the situation required? If we see the natural flow, then sometimes we are in the role of the helper and sometimes in the role of the helped. But in the ultimate spiritual sense, these roles are both artificial and we only need to do what needs to be done and leave it at that. Then going back to the quote about breathing in the unpleasant and breathing out the pleasant we mentioned before, Pema Chodron continues, This change in attitude doesn't happen overnight. It happens gradually at our own speed. She says it's important to start such a practice with ourselves. For how can we take on the unpleasantness of others if we've not yet dealt with our own unpleasantness? We have to fully recognize those aspects of ourselves we don't like and deal with them compassionately and intelligently. We can hardly bring peace to others if we are still at war with ourselves. On www.elephantjournal.com, Kara Bazuko tells what it is like to be at war with oneself in a blog titled My Addiction to the Pleasure-Pain Loop, a blog I think that would resonate with many of us, not because we are addicted to the pleasure-pain loop necessarily, but because it can give us some insight how we create the war within ourselves and so our own suffering. She uses some colorful language which I'm going to edit out for obvious reasons. She writes, I am an addict. We're all addicts, in some way. Addicts to meds, alcohol, cigarettes, love, drugs, sex, eating, phones, television, social media. You get my gist. I too am addicted. I'm fully and completely addicted to pain. My life is a vicious circle of pleasure, pain, pleasure, pain. The circle is hell. It's a spiral that makes my head dizzy my actions unpredictable, and my life a mess. I constantly flee from pleasure when I find it and crawl home to the pain. I drag myself up the hill, fighting against all my inner instincts telling me to turn around. The addict says, turn around and then what? Turn around and prance around like a fairy for a while longer. No, you need to do this. You need to come back to the pain just for a little while. You can leave again later, and this time it'll be for good, I promise. But it never ends. I choose to suffer, because I love to hate suffering. Life as we know it is just a big mirror looking at us. Everything we do, we do out of habit, or out of fear from something we once knew. Some individuals will live their entire lives in pain until something wakes them up. But I was not ready to wake up. Because the more I suffered, the more dramatic my life became. 
the more stories I had to entertain my bored mind, and the more pain I could endure, the more intensely I desired the sweet pleasure that would ease the pain again. When I finally decided to leave my pain cocoon, I would take myself far away to a pleasure oasis, where my mind was flooded with a sweet ecstasy, a brilliant trip, filling my life with colour and vibrancy. Somehow, here I would thrive again. During the peak of my pleasures, I begin to live how I want to live. I begin to march to my own beat. I start doing whatever I want. Like many who are addicted, we usually have multiple warning signs prompting us to change, but we will never change until we are finally ready to. I would get ideas about how I could make my life sustainable in some way. I would brainstorm and journal ideas on ways to live without suffering. I would begin to see ways to successfully change. But habits are hard to break. Addictions even harder. There would always come a moment when I became overwhelmed with a joy. And somewhere between guilt and fear of living too freely, I will always end my pleasure parade. Slowly I would begin to drag myself down again, deep into the depths of pain, right back to where I was before I left. Every time we arrive back to a painful place, we immediately want to leave. We want it to be gone. But sometimes we just don't know how to change our behavior yet, haven't learned not to crawl back to the same addiction, or how to move away from ourselves, or how we could take a step back and realize that there might be more than just these two paths, and we have the power to make another choice. But for the longest time, I just focused on surviving, so I could plan and save for my next big parade of adventures. During those times, I would hold on to the small memories, the little glimpses of light that I hoped would lead me out of this hell and back into a sweet paradise. I've lived like this for the last five years of my adulthood. I always threaten to change, dare myself to find a new way of living without this darkness, but I just could not bring myself to do it. Like an addict, the idea of leaving or stopping seemed impossible. Then comes a moment in life, an epiphany, those aha moments. Those of us who are lucky will have them on our own, realizing our own faults and our own addictions and how much pain we are causing ourselves. The epiphany came to me one evening as I was driving home from a yoga class. The road was as empty as my soul and the beautiful sun was giving a lovely farewell to the day. My radio was off. The drive was silent. It was just me and my mind. I began just watching my thoughts. I need to leave. I hate living here. I'm so unhappy. This sucks. I'm so bored. It was a constant repetition of the worst commercial you could think of. Then it clicked. I slammed on the brakes and began to sob. I cried and cried. I realized I'd fallen into lust with pain. The boredom and suffering fueled my desire to jump up and leave. It gave me something to talk about, something to dream about. Although my heart aches for freedom, my mind is entertained by suffering. The dichotomy I've trapped myself in will never die until I choose neither. To end this awful game of tug-of-war, I need to find the strength to stand up and walk away from both. I'm constantly fighting my life away. I either live underground in a cave, slowly dying, 
or enamored by a life on the mountaintops. Somehow, I've forgotten about all the places that exist in between. I need to learn to turn away from this pain I cause myself. I need to learn how to embrace life without creating tidal waves and accept that it's okay to live in a state of happiness for a while longer than just a few months. Why do we choose pain? Why do we choose to suffer? Why does the idea of drama allure us so much more than the simplicity of happiness? How is it possible to be so unconscious of the harm we cause ourselves? Is it because we surround ourselves with those similar to us and only when we break away from the norm do we realize maybe we are the crazy ones after all? I was addicted to pain like a person is to sex, heroin or their phone. It was constantly lingering, something I never acknowledged or never cared to admit. In an era of social sharing, we choose to share what's good in our lives, painting pictures of ideals. Let's quit the joke. Life is far more complex than a good Instagram filter. We all have our own addictions, insecurities and lies we tell ourselves, which keeps us trapped in some body that isn't us. We all have our dirt. If you think you don't, you probably just haven't found it yet. Suffering tears us apart. It takes us away from precious moments and creates more resentment than love. It creates this duality amongst our lives that makes us constantly choose this over that, fighting with ourselves, hurting ourselves, and killing a life that could be miraculously imperfect. But if we can admit our faults, love our weaknesses, and share our seemingly dirty secrets, we can begin to grow again. By sharing, we can begin to connect with each other and realize that this whole illusion of life is something we create by our own behaviors. I don't have the power to change you, break your habits or addictions, but you do. We all have our true self hiding inside us, crying out to be heard, but is covered up by the stuff we do habitually and unconsciously. It's not easy to be real. It's scary to admit our faults. But how else are we going to grow unless we just do it? Reality is such a bitch, and balance is the secret we've all been looking for, unable to grasp like fine-grained sand using a sieve to catch it. Maybe the sand is what we're trying to capture, but the tool we think we need to use isn't at all what we need. Or perhaps we don't need anything to realize we're sitting in a sandbox surrounded by abundance and the problem is merely the idea that we need to use something to catch it. Only you can decide. And that is Karabazoko. It is almost as if Pema Chodron replies to this very blog when she suggests a solution with If we have the aspiration to stop resisting those parts of ourselves we find unacceptable and instead begin to breathe them in, this gives us much more space. We come to know every part of ourselves with no more monsters in the closet, no more demons in the cave. We have some sense of turning on the lights and looking at ourselves honestly and with great compassion. Of course, as Kara Bazuko says, turning on the lights and looking at ourselves honestly and with great compassion is not all that easy. It might even sound like a hard, somewhat esoteric practice we try on the meditation cushion in a serious retreat. 
But actually, Pema Chodron doesn't see it like that. For her, it is an everyday practice, and we use all our everyday experiences, both pleasant and unpleasant, to make it part of our daily routine. She says, We could begin to get the hang of changing our attitude on an everyday level. When things are delightful and wonderful, we give away our pleasure on the outbreath, sharing it with others. That also allows for enormous space, not just for us, but for everyone. When we do this, all of our inner obstacles that keep us from connecting with our inherent freshness and openness begin to dissolve. This is the fundamental change of attitude, this working with pain and pleasure in a revolutionary and courageous way. When we work with pain by leaning into it and with pleasure by giving it away, it doesn't mean that we grin and bear it. This approach is a lot more playful than that, like dancing with it. We realize that the separateness we feel is a funny kind of mistake. We see that things were not dualistic from the start. We can wake up to that realization. The basis of any real kind of com compassionate action is the insight that the others who seem to be out there are some kind of mirror image of ourselves. By making friends with yourself, you make friends with others. By hurting others, you hurt yourself. Now this is a fundamental Buddhist teaching. In one example, the Buddha himself said that holding a grudge against someone is like holding a hot coal in your hand intending to throw it at your enemy. You are the one who gets burnt. Any negativity we hold and act out against others both fails to recognize our interdependence or even closer, our interbeing as Thich Nhat Hanh turns it and harms us much more than it harms the other. But we could also say that by hurting yourself, you hurt others. Our relationship with ourselves bleeds out into our relationships with others. We have to emphasize that even though taking on suffering and giving out happiness is counterintuitive, the text instructs us to practice without any obvious change in outward behavior. If we are to follow Pema Chodron's recommendation that we practice it in our everyday lives, it will be spoiled if suddenly our behavior changes and we appear to be a different person to all those around us. We have to be particularly careful not to put ourselves up as something special because we're practicing mind training. So, now that concludes the commentary on the instruction transform your attitude but maintain your natural behavior. The next slogan in our text reads Don't speak of others' incomplete qualities. And Nam Kapel comments, You should give up criticizing human and non-human beings out of spite and should not point out their mistakes. The well-known nun Tupton Children has an insightful teaching on this speaking about others' faults. You can find it on her website, tuptonchildren.org. It goes something like this. I vow not to talk about the faults of others. In the Zen tradition, this is one of the Bodhisattva vows. For fully ordained monastics, the same principle is expressed in the Pratyamaksha vow to abandon slander. It is also contained in the Buddha's recommendation to all of us to avoid the ten destructive actions, the fifth of which is using our speech to create disharmony. What an undertaking! I can't speak for you, but I find this very difficult. I have an old habit of talking about the faults of others. In fact, it's so habitual 
but sometimes I don't realize I've done it until afterwards. What lies behind this tendency to put others down? One of my teachers, Gishi and Dagi, used to say, You get together with a friend and talk about the faults of this person and the misdeeds of that one. Then you go on to discuss others' mistakes and negative qualities. In the end, the two of you feel good because you've agreed you're the two best people in the world. And when I look inside, I have to acknowledge he's right. Fueled by insecurity, I mistakenly think that if others are wrong, bad or fault-ridden, then in comparison I must be right, good and capable. Does the strategy of putting others down to build up my own self-esteem work? Hardly. Another situation in which we speak about others' faults is when we're angry with them. Here we may talk about their faults for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's to win other people over to our side. If I tell these other people about the argument Bob and I had and convince them that he's wrong and I'm right before Bob can tell them about the argument, then they'll side with me. And underlying that is the thought, if others think I'm right, then I must be. It's a weak attempt to convince ourselves we're okay when we haven't spent the time honestly evaluating our own motivations and actions. At other times, we may talk about others' faults because we're jealous of them. We want to be respected and appreciated as much as they are. In the back of our minds, there's the thought, if others see the bad qualities of the people I think are better than me, then instead of honoring and helping them, they'll praise and assist me. Or we think, if the boss thinks that person is unqualified, she'll promote me instead. Does this strategy win others' respect and appreciation? Hardly. Some people psychoanalyze others, using their half-baked knowledge of pop psychology to put someone down. Comments such as, he's borderline or she's paranoid, make it sound as if we have authoritative insight into somebody else's internal workings, when in reality we disdain their faults because our ego was affronted. Casually psychoanalyzing others can be especially harmful for it may unfairly cause a third party to be biased or suspicious. Tips and Children then goes on to list five results of speaking about the faults of others. First, she says, we become known as a busybody. Others won't want to confide in us because they're afraid we'll tell others, adding our own judgments to make them look bad. She goes on to say that she's cautious of people who chronically complain about others because they will probably speak that way about her in due course. Then she says, we will find ourselves in trouble when the person we criticized finds out what we said. That person may well retaliate by telling others about our faults or in other ways. Third, she says, some people get stirred up when they hear about others' faults. For example, if one person at an office or factory talks behind the back of another, everyone in the workplace may get angry and gang up on the person who's been criticized. This can set off backbiting throughout the workplace and cause factions to form. Is this conducive for a harmonious work environment? Hardly. Then she points out that our minds aren't happy when we criticize others. And finally, she says, by speaking badly of others, we create the cause for others to speak badly of us, either in this or in coming lives. And now our time is up and we must say farewell. We'll continue with this next time. 
Thanks for being with the program today and please dedicate any positive potential to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Thank you very much and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.